Well, are you guys ready to continue on in the book of Philippians this morning? Hallelujah. Well, let's go ahead and pray as we come to the word this morning. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your goodness and your great love. We thank you that uh, you've left your word for us, Father, as instruction, as a, as a guide for us. I thank you that we can learn who you are and that you still speak to us through it even today, Father. And I pray that this morning that our hearts are ready to receive what you have for us, Lord, that it would find fertile soil, that it wouldn't be stolen away, and then it would produce fruit in our lives. And we give you thanks and praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so we are on the book of Philippians part four. That means we're finishing up chapter two. I just like to confuse people. So part four, finishing up chapter two, and I've subtitled it, Working Out Your Own Salvation. So this is going to be a good one because Paul is going to continue on. If you remember last week, uh, Paul's main focus was on unity in the church. He wanted to make sure that, that we, were, we were coming together, we were of the same mind, we were working together for a common goal, and he's going to go ahead and continue with that theme in the beginning part of this, and, and basically he's going to tell us one thing that we all need to understand, and that by doing so, by operating in unity, we become light to the world. We begin to show the world something that they're not going to get anywhere else. But we're going to start with this first verse here in a second with probably one of the verses that's confused Christians the most out of a, well, maybe not the most, but it's definitely one of the ones way up there. That's a, it's a confusing verse. And it's the one that he says, work out your own salvation. Anybody ever read that and wonder what the heck he was talking about when he said to work out your own salvation? I'm the only one. I guess we don't need to do today. So we're going we're gonna to go ahead and just sit down. <laughs> Hallelujah. And then finally, he's going to end this, this section with basically letting the, the Philippian church know that he's going to be sending Timothy, he's going to send Aphrodite back, right? So uh, if you remember that uh, he was sent up to give them the, the message, the word, that, 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 uh, or to send the gift to Paul, and then Paul's going to send them back with this message and let uh, basically Timothy minister them. I don't know that Timothy, Timothy is coming to minister to them. But let's get to the big one, the work out your own salvation. So in Philippians 2, 12 through 13, it says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. All right, you guys ready for this? You ready to buckle up? Because there's a lot in these little couple verses right here. So, I got to tell you a story first to maybe help explain how this works. You guys, how many of you guys know that that uh, I have a turtle? We have a. Most of you guys know. Did I have you guys? Most of you heard the story about how my dog tried to eat my turtle. So here's what happened. We've had this turtle. We got him when he was like yay big around, maybe just an inch or two or a couple inches across. He's he's a sulcata. So uh, if it's a he, he can grow up to you know two three foot around. He can be big turtle, but they take like forever to get that big. But anyway, after a few years, he's probably, what, eight inches across now? Sure. My wife says sure, therefore it's certain. So he's about eight inches across, and we had a little turtle table in the house, and it was getting too small. And we wanted to give him some more room, make sure he was getting sunlight and the whole work. So we went outside in the backyard, and we built an enclosure out of, uh, out of bricks, filled it up with dirt, and we put him in there. And before we stuck him out there for the final time, we brought Bruno out. Bruno is our dog. He's the most awesome, worst dog in the world. So 
we brought them out there and we wanted to, to see how they were going to behave. So we set the, I just set the turtle on the ground out in the backyard. Bruno walks up, sniffs them, walks away, doesn't care. He cared less about the turtle. I'm like, well, this is fantastic because there's no top on the outside. It's almost like a, a planter we built that he's inside of. There's no top. And we put them out there, and, and we're thinking, well, Bruno doesn't even care about them. This is going to work out great. We don't have to worry about putting a top on it. He's just big enough now where the hawk shouldn't be able to get him, so we're good to go. So me and Michelle have been out there working all day. We go upstairs. We get cleaned up. And I go back outside, and I look, and all the 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 tree, there's like a, a big plant in there, and, and it's all knocked over and bumped over. I'm like, that stinking turtle. He just knocked everything over, and I walk up to it. But Blake goes, why is the turtle outside of the cage? And I'm like, it's not outside of the cage. There's no way he could get outside of the cage. He's like, look. And I look over, and the turtle's on his back outside the cage. So it turns out it wasn't the turtle that knocked over all the bushes. My dog got in there, and unfortunately for the turtle, he actually chipped off a piece of the shell. The turtle's bleeding. He's fine now. He's healed up. Other than he'll, he'll have that, you can tell that he was hurt at one point. He's going to be fine. And we put an electric fence around that bad boy. The dog does not go near it. He, he went near it once, and he's learned not to go near it again. But I'm telling you the story because I want to point out something. When I was there with the dog, he was great. When I was right there with him, he didn't mess with the tree. He was doing the right thing. But as soon as we turned our backs and we walked away, he went and got crazy. That's what Paul's talking about right here. He says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence. See, Paul knew that they obeyed his teachings and they were obeying Christ when he was around. And that's kind of the case for almost anybody. You ever known someone you, you work with when the boss is around? They're just like a shining superstar. As soon as the boss isn't looking, they're doing all kinds of crazy. If you haven't seen that person, it's probably you. So, and then your kids do that. I mean, the, the kid, kids are like that all the time, right? Kids in front of you, they're doing all the right thing. Everything looks good. You turn your back for one second. Next thing you know, it's like, what are you doing? And I think Paul's trying to deal with that because we have a natural tendency to do that. When people are looking, we put on a good show. But as soon as people are looking the other way, then that's when, unfortunately, that's when our character sneaks out. You see, what you'll do in front of people is just to put on a show. But what you do when the doors are closed, that's a demonstration of who you are. That's a demonstration of your character. So Paul wanted to make sure that when he wasn't looking, that they were still being obedient to his teachings and to the word of Christ. He wanted to make sure they were still doing the right thing. And matter of fact, he says something interesting. He said, not only so much as my presence, but much more in my absence. It's actually more important to be obedient when nobody's looking than it is when people are looking. Because that defines your character. That defines who you are. Anybody can look good in somebody for in front of somebody for a few moments, but what you'll do the long term behind closed doors, that's what defines who you are and what your character is. But he says this, the big tough statement, he says, All right, while you're obeying, even when I'm not there, obeying the my teachings and teaching of Christ, I want you to work out your own salvation. That phrase, work out your own salvation. See, this is a problem because uh, most modern churches, churches today teach salvation by grace. They teach that you don't have to work for salvation. And that's what we teach here because that's what the Bible says. So when we're looking at this, one thing that I've noticed that when you're reading the Bible, if, if 
all the other scriptures say one thing and there's one that says something else, more than likely you're, you need to reevaluate how you're understanding the other verses. You need to reevaluate why is this one different. If it's different, it's not because scripture is in contradiction to one another. It's because we're interpreting it improperly. So let me tell you what this doesn't mean so we can get started down that path. First, this is not working for your salvation. It's working out your salvation. There's a big difference between the two words. Working for your salvation means that you have to perform. You have to do the right things. That means that that's, uh, you know, God's going to be mad at you if you don't give, if you don't show up to church, if you don't read your Bible enough, if you don't do all of those things, if you don't help enough little old ladies across the street, then God's going to be ticked off at you. That's actually not the case. God doesn't love you based on how you perform. Now, that being said, you should do all those things. You should be in church. You should read your Bible. You should pray. You should help little old ladies across the street. We should do all of those things. Not out of a sense of duty or out of a sense of, of, of performance, like if I don't do these things, God's not going to love me, but because we recognize how much God has loved us. And because we recognize what God has done for us, that should spur out of you the, the want and the will to do those things. As a matter of fact, we're going to talk about that just in one second. So this is what Romans 3.28 says, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. That's pretty straightforward. It's not confusing. You're justified by faith, not by works of the law. Romans 5.1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Once again, not confusing. We're justified by faith. Galatians 3.24, So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. And then Ephesians 2.8-9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. So the scripture is clear that salvation is based on grace through faith. It says that over and over and over again. So we know that, we know that's solid, we know that that's said over and over and over. It's not confusing in any of those other verses, so now we have this one, work out your own salvation. So we have to figure out, what are we misinterpreting about this if we want to try to say that that means work for your salvation? But the thing is, is what Paul is talking about is not working for your salvation, but working out your salvation is, is, is another word for live out your salvation. That would be the best way to put it. In other words, put into practice what has been accomplished inside of you. You are free from sin. Did you know that if you're born again, you are free from sin? So put into practice in your life, living a life free from sin. You are made pure because of what he's done inside of you. So live your life like that. You've been made righteous, so live your life like that. You have been forgiven beyond all comprehension, so forgive others. That's what living out or working out your salvation is. It's not unlike when James argued in James 2, 17 through 18, he says, if you show me, my fa- you're, show me your faith without works, I'll show you my faith by my work. James wasn't saying, because that's the big one too, right? Faith without works is dead. People say, oh, no, you have to work, because faith without works is dead. But if you read that next part where he says, you show me your faith without your works, I'll show you my faith by my works, all James is saying is that if you have a, a real faith, if you have a life-changing faith, it's going to cause something to happen in your life. 
you're going to end up doing the right thing. We don't work to be saved, but because we're saved, naturally we're going to want to work. And look, I can describe this to you in the simplest way that you'll ever think about because we all do this naturally. And I remember when I used to work, we'd go and uh, we'd go get coffee at Circle K. And I would buy coffee for people. They'd be behind me. I got his coffee too. And you know what happened every time I did that? The next time we went, they would be clamoring to buy coffee. Because naturally we want to respond and how in the same way we've been responded to. And it's no different with Jesus. He gave us everything. He gave us freedom. He gave us life. He forgave us of everything. So naturally, we should want to live that out in turn. That's what Paul means by working out your salvation. And then he goes on to say, this is to be done with fear and trembling. This is another one of those phrases in the Bible that, that I think confuses people because they're the, the way that they understood fear was different than the way we understand it now. We understand fear through horror movies now, like where you're afraid for your life. But I think another way that you can, you can read this instead of working out your own salvation with fear and trembling, you could read this, work out your own salvation with awe and respect. This isn't to say to be afraid of God in the sense that he's coming after you, but like I said, it's in awe and respect. It's like, anybody ever been to the Grand Canyon? That is a beautiful place. You know what I had heard about the Grand Canyon? We just finally went for the first time a few years ago. And I was just in awe of what it actually was. Because even if you've heard the stories or seen pictures, it doesn't do it justice to you actually standing in front of it. But just because it's beautiful, just because it's amazing, doesn't mean that we shouldn't, as they would put it, treat it with fear and trembling. Do you know how many people die at the Grand Canyon every year. Several people every year fall into the Grand Canyon. They get too close to the edge. They're not treating it with fear and trembling or on respect. They think they can get away. They go to the edge and they slip and they fall to their death. The Grand Canyon's intention is not to destroy anybody. But if you don't treat it with the respect that it deserves, then all kinds of crazy stuff can happen. One of the things that I've been reminded of recently is the power and, and, and tools. So you guys know I've been working with wood. We built a thing back there. I've been doing all kinds of stuff. And, and I, I bought a table saw. And if anybody's ever worked on a table saw, if it catches weird or does the wrong thing, those things have power that you could never imagine. Matter of fact, one of the things that I was doing is I, I, I learned everything off YouTube. So I was watching a lot of videos to make sure I'm doing things right. And they're showing what these things can do. And uh, one of the things that can happen is that the wood binds. It can, uh, the wood can swing back over the top, and it happens so fast. If your hand's anywhere near, it'll suck your hand into the saw. So I've, there's a, a, a lady who's a, a hairdresser, a very famous hairdresser, um, who just recently cut her, her forefinger off working on the saw. She'd done it many times before, but it caught weird, and it cut her finger off. And she's had to relearn her, her entire, basically, how to, how to use scissors again, missing her pointer finger. Another guy was showing how that it, uh, if you take and, and bind the wood intentionally, what he did is he set it up as safe as he could, and he's throwing wood off the saw so fast that he's embedding it in a door. And if he used smaller pieces of wood and sharpened them, he could put a piece of wood all the way through a door with a kickback on a table saw. So this got me thinking about these things. One, and Joseph would tell you, they're incredibly useful. I would rather use a table saw all day long than do it by hand. 
But you have to have respect for the tools that you're using. You have to operate them, as they would say, in fear and trembling. Not because it's out to get you, not because you should be afraid as in, as in scary movie afraid, but as in recognizing the power that those things have and the potential that they could do. You see, I think that you could almost refer to it as a healthy fear. Because the truth is, is that our God is all-powerful and deserving of our respect and appreciation and our awe. I think this is why Jesus said this in Matthew 10, 28. He said, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul, but fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. I don't think that Jesus was trying to make a point that, that you need to be afraid of God because if you don't, he's going to hurt you. But it was a recognition of the power that he had. A recognition of, of who God is. Sometimes I think that we forget that God is the creator of the universe and everything that's within it. He is everything in it. He is all powerful. He is, he is everywhere being, everywhere, all things knowing. You know, the, those fancy words, omnipotent, omnipresent, and all of those things. He, he is all of those things. And when you got to understand when we're talking about God, we're not talking about our next door neighbor. Now, God is not out to get you. He's not waiting for you to mess up, to, to hit you with a stick. Matter of fact, God loved you so much that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for you, to pay the price completely for you. No payment on yours in return, just saying, I want to do this for you because I love you. But we still need to understand who he is and recognize. You know, the, the Bible says that, that we can call him our friend. How many know that that's good news? We can call the Lord our friend. The problem is too many of us forget that he's also our Lord. Amen? And then he says, we do this because it is God who works in us both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So first, he's talking that he works to will for his good pleasure. So basically, the, to will is to have a desire or a mind that would want to serve him. A, basically, a mind that is just like his. God is working in you so that your mind will begin to be like his mind, so you'll begin to think like he thinks. 1 Corinthians 2.16 says, For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. And when we are in one mind with him, then our desires are his desires. One of my favorite scriptures is Galatians 5.25. It says, If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. And I, I love this scripture because I understand what it means to keep in step. You understand what it means to keep in step, don't you? You remember when you first started in basic training, they would get ready to start and everybody would march in place waiting for the first people to take off? But then you watch, you watch uh, uh, when they do parades and stuff where those people are trained at marching in step. When, when, they, when they say for the first step, they give the command, everybody steps at once. There's no according. There's no marching in place. There's no, because they're perfectly in step, every single one of them, of one mind with one goal. And that's what it means to be in step with the Spirit. That means that we're walking with Him. When He moves, we move. When He stops, we stop. When He speaks, we speak the same thing. When He thinks, we think the same thing because His mind is inside of us. And then He says that four-letter word, we're to work for His good pleasure too. You see, not only will we have a desire to serve God in a mind like his, 
we're actually going to do it. And he's going to give us the ability, because if God gives you the desire to serve him, he's going to give you the ability to serve him. In Ephesians 2.10, it says that, for we are his workmanship, workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God has a plan for your life. God has a purpose for your life. He has things that he wants you to be doing for his kingdom, to serve him, to make an impact, to make a difference. But we have to do these things, work out our own salvation, which means to live out our salvations with giving God the respect and honor and awe that he deserves because he's working in us, one, to change our mind, to make us think more like him. And when we think more like him, we're going to want to do like him and whatever he needs us to do. Amen? And then he goes on in Philippians 2, 14 through 16, do all things without grumbling and disputing that you may be blameless and innocent. See all those times I told you guys to quit whining? That was biblical. Because that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Anybody ever heard the expression, attitude is everything? Especially if you play sports, you know that. That come, comes all the time. Have you ever met people who seem to have nothing? but are always happy, they're always joyful, they're always content. Have you ever seen the opposite side of that? People that pretty much, if you look at their life, they have everything, but they're always complaining, they're always whining, they're always saying they don't have enough. It's like no matter how good they have it, they're just going to grumble and complain. Matter of fact, it seems like half the country's doing that right now. I'm actually getting frustrated with some of the attitudes that people have in this country, because I believe we live in a great country. I believe that we have amazing opportunity. We have, now I'm not saying everything's perfect, but I think to disrespect the country and the men and women who are serving in this country, disparaging, disparaging soldiers, disparaging firefighters and first responders and policemen, because you think everything is so terrible when you don't realize how good we actually have it. There's a reason why people are flooding our borders because we have it amazing here. But we have so many people who are just complaining about everything that they can find to complain about instead of recognizing what they actually have here. We really do have it amazing. The poorest people in the United States are still richer than almost everybody in third world countries. The poorest of us are richer than some of the richest in third world countries. We have so much. Particularly some of these famous people that are have, taking these attitudes drives me crazy because they have so much. They've had so much opportunity, so much privilege, and really so much wealth for them. They have everything, yet they're they're, they're complaining and, and grumbling instead of being thankful for what they have. And like I said, I, I'm not saying that everything's perfect. I think that we should improve. Our goal as individuals, our goal as a church, our goal as a, as, as a community, as our, we should always want to improve and get better. But we can do that while recognizing what we have at the same time. Amen? See, Paul is telling them to be the first kind of 
not the people that complain when they have everything, but the people that are, that are joyful, that are thankful, even when they don't. He says, do all things without grumbling and disputing. So that means good stuff, right? It's easy to do the good stuff without disputing, right? But it means all that. That means go to your job without grumbling or dis- disputing. That means sometimes you've got to clean the toilets without grumbling or disputing. I don't, but other people. <laughs> I learned it from her. Hallelujah. He's telling them to, to be those kind of people. Do things without grumbling or dispute. That means sometimes you're going to have to do stuff you don't want to do, but do it for the Lord. And then there's going to be times we do stuff we do want to do, but we do it for the Lord. And then he says, why? That we may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. This is another one that is talking about where you can get confused. When he says that we're being blameless and innocent, it doesn't say so you can be blameless and innocent before God. We're already blameless and innocent before God because of what Christ did on the cross. What he says is so you can be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish before a crooked and twisted generation. The thing is, is that if you don't take this attitude in your life, you'll start down a rabbit hole that you're going to have a hard time getting out of. See, the first thing you're going to do is start complaining about how bad it is, forgetting how good you have it. And then you're going to start, you're going to quit trying in life. It's so bad, why should I even try? And then you just give up. You end up shifting the blame to others. You blame other people for your problems, or you begin blaming God for your problems. It starts affecting your relationships. pushes you away from God. And instead of looking like Christians, you end up looking just like the rest of the world, if not worse. You see, then, when you start acting with grumbling and disputing and complaining and having a bad attitude, you don't look blameless and innocent or children of God in the midst of the crooked generation. You look just like them, except for they know you're Christians, so they're going to go, why would I want to be one of them? They're just as bad, if not worse, than us. But in this world, we should be light, shining, shining brightly. Just holding fast to the, 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 the crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. For the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. We're supposed to be lights to the world. And one thing we have to remember, always remember, that as soon as you call yourself a Christian, you are shining into the world. People see you as a Christian. And how you behave, how you act, how you live is reflected on Christ. And the problem is that so many Christians have done a poor job of that. That's why people say that Christians are hypocritical because there's been so many of them that have been. How about we take a stand and be the ones that aren't, amen? And he says, but how do we do this? By holding fast to the word of life. If you ever wonder why you have a hard time living like Christ, ask yourself how often do you spend in his word and in prayer? That makes a big difference in our life, matter of fact, the scripture says that we're to renew our mind daily. It doesn't mean that God's going to, by osmosis, renew your mind. That means you've got to put in the work. It's a command. Renew your mind daily. And he says, if we do that, Paul says that I want you to do that so that in the day of Christ I may, may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. What is he talking about? We talked about a couple weeks ago what Paul went through in the city of Philippi, right? He got thrown in prison. And then they went ahead and started singing, 
the the prison fell apart none of you nobody ran away but he was he was beaten and he was thrown in prison he was put in the stocks I mean, he was treated poorly but he was willing to do the work to make an impact in someone's life but he says you know what i don't want to stand before christ and look around and none of you guys are there because you fell away and then i labored in vain because if that's the case then it's all for nothing so instead what does he say over here? He says, obey me even where I, when I'm gone. Work out your own salvation. Quit whining and go ahead and, and be the light that you're supposed to be in front of this world. So that way, when I stand before Christ, I know it wasn't in vain. You're going to be right there with me. Amen? And then in, he continues on in Philippians 2, 17 through 18. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, also, you should be glad and rejoice with me. He's saying, if you guys stay the course, then even if I am poured out as a drink offering, it will be worth it. And what he means by drink offering, this was a, a Jewish sacrificial system. They poured out a drink as an offering to the Lord. But basically what he's using this is, is an allegory for martyrdom. He says, if I have to give my life in this Roman prison, because that's where he's at right now. He's in prison writing this letter. He says, if I have to give my life to be poured out for you, then it was worth it if you stay the course. But if you don't stay the course, then it was all for nothing. And he says, not only that, I want you to rejoice with me if this happens. Now that's a weird statement. Paul says, look, you hold the course, and even if I am sent to death for this gospel, because Paul was willing to go to death for the gospel, he says, even if I am put to death for the gospel, I want you to rejoice with me. So Paul's saying, you know what, I would gladly, I would joyously give my life. Not too many people are joyful about giving their life, but he says, I would joyfully give my life for you if you stay the course. And don't, don't be so upset for it. I mean, obviously, we're going to grieve for people when they pass. But in this case, Paul's saying, don't let that overwhelm you. Rejoice with me that it was worth it. He says, I am glad and I rejoice with you all for your salvation. Likewise, you should be glad and rejoice with me. Paul considered a privilege to die for the faith. And he wanted the Philippians to take the same attitude that he had and recognize that this is a reason to be joyful when people are coming to the Lord. You know, because I think as Christians, we have to remember that it's worth giving up anything because this, this life we live here is temporary. It's short. In the scheme of things, the 80 or so years on average, I think the average life expectancy in the United States is something like 72 or 76 years old. You know, if you live that long, that's just a drop in the bucket to eternity. As long as you're spending it in the right place, it's worth going a little bit early if you can bring somebody with you, amen? So then he continues on after finishing that portion of the letter in Philippians 2, 19 through 24. He says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I may too have be that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth. I was a son with the father he has served with me in the gospel. And I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. So like we said, Paul's in prison in Rome. He's on basically on house arrest. He can't leave. He can't go see what's going on down there. 
But Paul still cared for these people. He wasn't going to let something as minor as prison keep him from doing his ministry and, and, and making a difference in their lives. So he says, you know what? I'm going to send somebody to minister to you instead. I'm going to send Timothy. And Timothy was obviously with Paul. It would have been harder, pretty hard for him to send if he wasn't there. But he, he wasn't a prisoner. And, but we know that, that Paul loved Timothy, and he thought very highly of him. Matter of fact, we know he thinks highly of him because he says, I have no one like him. Paul often refers to Timothy as his son in the faith. He refers to himself as a father in the faith. He was one of the pastors that Paul raised up. And matter of fact, this isn't the only time that, that Paul sent him somewhere. He sent him to a couple of the other churches in his stead too when he couldn't make it there. And Paul knows that like himself, Timothy is going to be genuinely concerned about their welfare. Because apparently there were a few who only cared about themselves. It says, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ but I have no one like him who would be genuinely concerned for your welfare. So he sends Timothy knowing that he's going to care. He has a heart just like Paul's. You know, it's funny. We see so many people that enter into the, to the ministry for, for fame or for glory, and apparently there's some that have done it for money. And they didn't start in a church like ours, I don't think, but uh, some people have got into it. But this isn't something new. I think it's funny when we look at the world and we think that everything is new, but this stuff's been happening forever. There was plenty of people back then. They were concerned for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. They were out there preaching the gospel with bad motives. But in addition to that, though, he says, but you know, you know Timothy's proven worth. We also know that Timothy went to Philip, was down there in Philippi with him on that first missionary journey. They knew Timothy. They knew who he was. So not only did he send someone who cared about them, someone who Paul trusted, he sent someone that they knew to go down there and begin to minister to them. And basically, the only thing that was happening, I think the only reason Paul didn't send Timothy right away is because he was trying to figure out what was going on. He says, I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it'll go with me. He was waiting for the, basically the verdict of his trial before he sent Timothy off. So he went ahead and he grabbed up Ephroditus and said, you know what? Go ahead back to your people, and we're going to talk about that in a second because he, he's the one that carries the letter. And as soon as they get it, Paul wants them to know that, one, I got someone coming. As soon as we figure out what's going on with me, I'm going to send them straight down there. And hopefully, if all goes well with me, then I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. And we continue on in verse 2, 25 through 26. He says, I have thought it necessary to send Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need, for he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. So we know the story, the back story of this is Epaphroditus had left Philippi to go to Rome carrying the gift uh, that they had raised to give to Paul. So they sent him some, some money. I imagine there was cookies and all of those other things, some reading material, going to keep him comforted. And uh, Epaphroditus goes ahead and, and brings that up to him. And then Paul says, but I now find it necessary to send him back to you. And I think it's funny or interesting that he actually cares a lot about Epaphroditus as well. He says that he's my brother, my fellow worker, and fellow soldier, in addition to being your messenger, because he brought the gift and ministered to my need. He also did more than just bring a gift. He stayed there and served and ministered to Paul. But Paul felt it necessary to send him back. One, he knew that Epaphroditus was a little bit concerned about the people back in Philippi. They had heard that he had gotten sick. So 
he was worried that they wouldn't know what happened to him there, so he wanted to get back for that. And also, Paul needed to send this letter to encourage the Philippian church. But we find out later that Epaphroditus was more than just a little bit sick. He actually almost died. Philippians 2, 27, 2, 30 says, Indeed, he was ill near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also. Lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow, I am, more, I am the more eager to send him, therefore that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I might be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor, and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Like I said, apparently Epaphroditus was more than just a little sick. He came very close to death. People back home had heard that he almost died. They're probably concerned. They don't know what the outcome was. I don't know if you don't know this, but the iPhone 1 hadn't come out for a long time, so they couldn't call each other yet. I think the postal system in Rome was probably just getting getting underway here. So uh, there, it, it took a little while to to uh, to get some messages sent. So he didn't know what was they don't know what was going on with them. But we know that God healed them because Paul was praying for them. And I imagine Epaphroditus was praying for himself as well. They pray God heals them. Paul says not only did he heal them for himself, but he healed them for me because I would imagine if you're Paul, Paul was no different than any one of us. He had a mission. He was willing to serve. He was willing to die, but he wasn't. God didn't give him special supernatural powers to deal with what he was dealing with. He was a, he was a man just like any of us in this room. He was human. He dealt with all the same stuff. It hurt when his friends hurt. When people died, that caused him pain. He wasn't looking forward to, to being in prison. It wasn't a good time for him. Now, we, we know we're going to find out later that he knows how to be content in those situations. He's going to rejoice anyway, but it's not like he wanted to be there. He would much rather be able to go back to Philippi to, to meet these people. So we have to imagine if he's just like us and stuff hurts us and stuff weighs down on us, that he's just as, as can easily be overwhelmed. And he says that God healed them, not only for him, but just so it wouldn't be one more thing added on my plate, one more thing to have a friend die while I'm already in prison, while I'm already up here doing these things. So, so God had mercy on them both, and he, healed, they heal, he heals Epaphroditus, and he's able to send them back. And he says, I am the more eager to send him, therefore that you may rejoice at seeing him again, that I may be less anxious. Some of the commentators on this, they say that the reason why Paul was so adamant in a couple times saying that I thought it was necessary and I am eager to send him because if they send Epaphroditus back, the, the Philippian church would be, wait, why are you back? Did you fail in what you were doing? Why did you quit? Did you give up? Paul wanted to make sure that they didn't think less of him, but actually they honored him for his work, even though he was coming back early. And then he says, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. It's also another interesting phrase to me. You know, when we receive an offering at the end of every month to give to missions, it's a great opportunity for us to get involved. And the scripture also says that, that those who stay back with the baggage get the same reward as those who go to war. That's, uh, 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 forget which book it's in, but it's, it's talk, David says that. But the point is, is that sometimes all we can give is money. 
And that's what the Philippian church did. They couldn't send a big group of people to minister to them. Um, they couldn't do, but what they could do is they sent money and they sent Epaphroditus. So the money and the gift was helpful, helpful to Paul. We know that Paul says he received it. It was, uh, thank you so much for sending it. It was, it was a great blessing to me. But there's more to life than money. You know, money is actually the easiest thing that you can give to support a cause. It doesn't require any, any uh, uh, commitment really on your part, and you can always get more money. But sometimes we need people to put in time as well, to put in the effort, to actually serve. And that's what Paul's talking about here. He says, look, you, you sent me some money. That was great, but he risked his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. What was lacking in their service is they, someone there to minister to them. And while the gift of money is always welcome, what really makes a difference in people's lives is when you come and you walk alongside of them when you serve alongside of them, when you make a difference alongside of them, that's when you start making an impact in people's lives. It's one of the reasons why I talk about us as a church, that we're a family, that we should be spending time with one another, developing relationships with one another. It's because that's what matters in life. That's what's important. That's what's going to last is our relationships with one another when we can remember when we served alongside one another. And, and that means from everything from just going and having dinner with one another to helping people move to cleaning up the backyard to doing any of those things. Money's easy, but giving your time to one another, to serving with one another, that's the hard part. So I would encourage you, church, to, to, to do that. And that's part of in the beginning of this, we talked about being in unity with one another, walking in step with the Holy Spirit, to having the same mind as Him. Those work, that's, that's working together in unity. So church, I would encourage you as, as we're going through this, one, we remember the main points. One, we should have unity. Two, we should be joyful no matter what the situation and work together. Amen? Amen.